Welcome to FRT. I'm Brad Carr of the IF, and today we're talking digital identity. What I think has emerged is really one of the big stories through the pandemic and the accelerated digitalization that we've observed, and very much one of the key tools of the new economy. And most specifically, we're going to talk about the Game Paper, the Global Assured Identity Network white paper published on September 13. To join me on that, we've got a couple of great experts, and real foremost experts in this field. We have Gail Hodges, Executive Director of the OpenID Foundation, an organisation that the IF has been very pleased to partner with over the last two years as part of the Open Digital Trust Initiative. And Gail brings an incredibly diverse perspective from her prior work in other parts of the payments ecosystem, including at Apple Pay, HSBC and Amex. And Elizabeth Garber is Vice President for Digital Products at Santander, of course, a firm that has been very much a leading visionary within our work stream. And Elizabeth has also previously led customer experience and strategy functions, both there and at EDF Energy, Lloyds Bank and more. Gail and Elizabeth, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Hey Brad, great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. It's very appropriate to have you both with us. It reflects a milestone in the Open Digital Trust journey uh, and we'll talk more about the game paper. But in terms of that journey, last year back on episode 73, we hosted your colleagues Don Thibault of OpenID and Rod Boothby of Santander. They've both been fantastic partners with the IEF over this journey and I do want to pay tribute to both of them. They both continue to be very active in our work. But it's also great to hear some fresh perspectives on FRT today with both of you. Now, we did mention the game paper, Global Assured Identity Network. And, uh, and I want to start, perhaps before we, we jump straight into that, we might just recap a little bit on the, the Open Digital Trust Initiative, some of the background and the history of, of what's come before this, this most recent milestone. And, uh, and Gail, perhaps if I could start with you, perhaps if I could ask you, could you quickly tell our listeners a little bit about the Open ID Foundation? And the pathway, as you've seen it there at OpenID, and, and what's brought us to this point with GAME. Absolutely, Brad. So uh, I think it was uh, you and Don Thibault who were partnering together a couple of years back, you know, bringing together the, the IIF and the OpenID Foundation to explore uh, the Open Digital Trust Initiative in partnership to really see what was the art of the possible um, in this ecosystem to address some of the structural challenges that everyone is seeing, you know, certainly within financial services. Uh, within the identity sector and much more broadly, uh, many of us as individuals on a day-to-day -day basis see the structural challenges around identity. Um, and so I think it was great, you know, that we joined that partnership two years ago and clearly it has proved quite fruitful with the, the publication of, of the game paper as a, a major deliverable uh, in that partnership. Um, but really still the beginning of a great journey and one I think we'll be going into today. Yeah, agree. It's, it's, it feels like we've worked a lot and achieved a lot, but there's still so, so much ahead of us still, uh, which we'll talk a lot more about. Elizabeth, your firm's been very much a, a leader, I think, within the financial industry in the way that you've been thinking about these issues. And indeed, I've actually heard from other firms that, that have looked to Santander's leadership and the fact that you probably started confronting this issue earlier than others. Can you tell us a bit about why it's so important to you at Santander? That's a really good question, Brad. Thank you for asking it. So I should probably start by making it clear that I am not a bank spokesperson. Um, so what I say here is going to be really a reflection of my own opinion uh, of why I think we've been so engaged. Um, and although I could give you a long list of things that I think are really important to the bank, I'm probably going to offer two things that I think carry most of the weight. So I'm incredibly proud to work for a brand that lives its mission. So the first thing I'll raise is that Santander exists to help people and businesses prosper. I'm a really big admirer of our chairwoman, Anna Botin, who consistently reiterates this as a driving force for the bank. And as a global team, we demonstrate it too, whether it's our work that, that we do to support customers, local economies, and even governments during the COVID crisis, or our commitments in relation to climate change. I was listening this morning to one of the first interviews of your annual members meeting, and uh, Anna there tells your CEO, Tim Adams, about our goal to include and empower 10 million people by 2025. She talked about our Prospera microfinancing platform that helps in several of our markets. In this and other interviews that she does, um, she's brilliant at personalizing the value that banks create. She talks about how the intersection of our personal interactions and simple digital payments experiences create a more inclusive world. And so for me, that's exactly what I believe we're doing when we play a leading role in scoping out what such a network, um, as proposed by the Open Digital Trust Initiative and the Game Paper, what that network could look like, how it could work, how it should be governed in order to add maximum value and empower people and businesses around the world. I think you make some really important points there, Elizabeth, and I think the, this is one of those great instances where the agenda around things like inclusion, uh, I think, coincides with 
some really important commercial strategic imperatives for banks and insurers as well. Uh, and I do want to pick those up with you uh, a little bit further in the conversation as well. So let's let's turn specifically to, to GAIN. And Gail, when I talk about GAIN, I tend to describe it as being a, an open network. And I think that the, the end for network, network is really the operative word, that it's it's a space, it's a, an, an operation, a network where different participants can come together in an ecosystem with solutions that are interoperable and where we're using common standards. And obviously, the OpenID Foundation has been a magnificent champion of common standards for a long time in the, around uh, the technical space with ID, but also with in more recent times with things like FAPI, the, the financial grade API. But in terms of this emphasis I'm putting on the, the network and the ability for, for participants to come together in this ecosystem, have I got that right? Or, or how would you describe GAIN? Yeah, I think in one word, Brad, it's about interoperability, right? Interoperability between a whole bunch of different parties within the ecosystem and uh, allowing them to leverage open standards to connect with each other. Um, so sometimes it's useful to look at what it's not. So this is, GAIN is not a single private company, a single bank, you know, or a single, let's say, payment network you know, that is going to be rent-seeking and, and taking advantage of, of all parties globally and all individuals around the world, far from it, right? It is an opportunity for a wide range of different identity providers to, to release information about individuals, you know, under that, that individual's consent and a very wide range of relying parties to be able to consume that information. But there's, you know, it's really about the interoperability between all of those different parties and using existing technology and existing standards to be able to power that interoperability. So you mentioned a couple uh, OpenID Foundation standards, some of which might be known to regular everyday users. So everyday users would be maybe doing something like logging in with Google or logging in with Microsoft, and that's using a standard called OpenID Connect, which many different parties have enabled, not just for single sign-on, like I was just describing, but also for enterprise access. So if you're part of a you know, smaller, medium-sized corporation and you have multiple different services, often you're using OpenID Connect to, to gain access to different services. And similarly, if you're in a market like the UK, you'd be familiar with open banking um, and the ability for uh, the user to have control over the data that is being held by their financial institution, enabling different kinds of services. And that is the financial grade API from the OpenID Foundation, which is enabling that with the blessings of the UK government to empower the interoperation between financial institutions and relying parties and third uh, TPPs, third-party uh, payment entities, you know, to, to access information. Um, similarly, those standards are being for open banking are being adopted in other countries like Australia, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and, and the Russia, and the list goes on. Um, so the OpenID Foundation has this track record of building credible, um, interoperable standards, and now we're looking at you know, creating services that are more linked to the user's own individual information. So what is the name, the date of birth, you know, the age, the age of consent for different types to meet different kinds of regulations. And it could be financial services regulations, it could be data and age of consent regulation, or there may be no regulation at all per se, but an, an organization, a blind party wants to have higher confidence who an individual is, and they need to have that confidence in order to provide that product or that service to that person. And the person, of course, would like you know, the lowest amount of friction to gain access to the service that they're trying to enjoy. Um, and how do we all do that in a way that is privacy preserving and uh, secure uh, to allow all these parties to interoperate together? So it can kind of make your head explode on one level, um, but uh, it's, a, it's a thorny problem where we believe that the subject matter experts in this domain can really lean in and leverage standards that do interoperate, not just within a single country, but across countries. Um, to best serve individuals. And, and Elizabeth had it right. And, you know, there's this kind of primal calling that many of us feel <laughs> that we have this expertise and we know we as a community can do so much better. This is actually a, a statement and a, an approach in the game white paper as to how we can all lean in and create much better services for users and for society. I think that point you make about interoperability is the key word was, was one we really felt in, in a lot of our working group activity over the last uh, 12 or 18 months that I went into this naively, perhaps, thinking interoperability is really important in terms of interoperability with different identity systems, because we're not wanting to reinvent the wheel. We're not wanting to duplicate. Some countries have got very good national systems. Some have got ecosystems at a national level, like a bit of what we're talking about, for instance, in the Nordics. But I quickly learned that, that yes, it is all of those things, but it's also 
interoperability with payments and interoperability with different parts of government systems and interoperability with open banking as, as one of the examples you mentioned. It's kind of there's a, I don't, I don't know whether it's about the multiple axes or whether it's a more complex labyrinth than that, but there's interoperability on so many different levels really that we're talking about, aren't there? There is, Brad, maybe I'll speak to it and I bet Elizabeth, you have some use cases, you know, top of mind as well. You know, for, for me, the, the use cases for an individual um, in some ways are, are quite simple, right? Like I, as an individual, want to gain access to restricted content online and I need to prove that I'm a child over 13 or I'm an adult over 18 because I want access to that restricted content, um, which could be, you know, gaming information or adult content or, you know, different kinds of, let's see, alcohol delivery use cases, things that might be age-related, um, but it can also be financial services or mobile network services where you'd like to, you need to fully evaluate someone. So what is their EKYC or their identity assurance? What are you obliged to do under national law? And how can you best identify that individual? Um, so going through you know, a, a process where any relying party, whether it's a bank, whether it's a digital platform, you know, whichever kind of entity, is able to consume the same string of data and can evaluate that string of data on the name, the date of birth, whatever they need to know to complete that transaction, and to also then associate it with an appropriate trust framework for the market in which that transaction is being conducted. So the relying party can comply with law consistently in the same way every time. And an individual relying party might need to put together multiple different entities in order to serve their population. So there wouldn't necessarily just be one identity service provider that uh, a bank or a, a digital platform or a uh, any small venture that needs to understand user data, they can't necessarily just consume one service provider. They can consume services from many different entities in order to be compliant and to and to serve their, their user base. It, it can be, frankly, very confusing, Brad, because of the breadth <laughs> of all the different use cases that we're talking about. It's like any time you want to identify a user, it would be using the same standards, the same approach. So, Elizabeth, if I can turn to you, um, you led a lot of the, the editing work through the process of the game paper, which I think must have been a, an absolutely monumental task, given the extensive reach of the different contributors, the different signatories. Uh, it, it's a, a huge undertaking and, and an enormous credit to, to you with, with what you've achieved there. As you went through that process, were there some particular themes or motivations or experiences that, that really stood out for you through that process uh, as you found working with such a, an extensive and diverse group? Yeah. So as the co-editors of the paper uh, alongside me will attest, it certainly was a monumental task, but it was also a really incredible team of co-authors who were united by a common goal, um, and that is to catalyze the creation of this globally interoperable network for high trust identity assurance. A lot of these co-authors have been pursuing related goals for well over a decade. Uh, Kim Cameron, the author or one of the co-authors and um, former head of identity at Microsoft, he wrote um, The Laws of Identity. And that was back in 2007, I think. I looked it up this morning. Um, another co-editor of mine, Dawei Liklema of InnoPay, he shared a YouTube video with me that made a lot of the same points, honestly, as the paper, and it was also dated 2007. I'm pretty sure we could go back further than that. Um, so under the banner of this common purpose and with the common foundation of really resilience over time, uh, I must say I'm really impressed by how the co-authors show a willingness to flex on a lot of the details as we coalesced around a common structure. There are a few other themes that emerged as we wrote the paper. So first, in addition to the societal benefits that we've already touched upon a little bit, the authors really are committed to a focus on the individual, the benefits to the individual. Um, and that's really how any solution must not only protect our data and make us more secure than we are today, but also some of the ways that it can solve our biggest pain points online. So we need a solution that's going to be simple and seamless and more convenient than the solutions we have today in order to ensure that customers actually adopt it. And we're all looking forward to the days, all of the authors and all of us, I think, around the table, when we have far fewer passwords in our lives um, and it's not a headache to recover a password or a user ID. The second theme, and it really builds off the first point, actually, is, is that it needs to have global reach. That's one of the things that ensures usefulness to customers. 
Um, it ensures convenience, um, and it certainly ensures that the solution adds value to the businesses that operate internationally, whether we're talking about them having international customers, an international supply chain, or you know, a, a truly globally scaled company. And that brings us back to that theme of interoperability. The authors are really united in arguing for the development of those standards that will ensure interoperability rather than any kind of single system. It ensures that we're delivering a great user experience and all of those benefits from all those different layers and use cases and that global reach without requiring these companies to integrate with a different ID solution for, with every bank or in every jurisdiction on the planet. I think that point you make there about you know, the criticality that it's seamless and simple to use, and, and it's a point um, actually that, that Greg Wolf and the Secure Key made previously on FRC as well, that, that the only solutions that are really going to work are ones that customers are able to use across multiple walks of life, and whether that's for their finances as well as for how they integrate with government services and their health records or the university records or how they get into a concert or how they get onto a flight. But you need to be able to integrate with all of those things and, and not think of it in isolation from one industry or from one use case. Um, it's a great point that we've, we've heard repeatedly. And as you say, it's great that the authors have, have not only got on board with that, but equally uh, absorbed that focus on the benefits for the individual. I would add one other thing, actually, and it, it brings us back to another interview that you did. So the authors are united about inclusion as well and the inclusion of not just financial services companies in in this network. As Katinka Jesse Broberg from Vips in Norway, um, she's another GAIN co-author, and I actually reached out to her after I heard your interview with her. As she pointed out when you spoke to her, the trust anchors are different in different places. Um, what works in one country might be different in another. We might need to work with different kinds of organizations, mobile phone companies, governments, post offices, et cetera, to obtain the high trust identity data that feeds into the network. Yeah, and, and I think it's really important that it, it is an open network in which all of those firms are, are welcome to participate. And, and ultimately, it's for both consumers and also for the businesses that are needing to rely on identity services. It's for them to decide which kind of parties they're comfortable with. I, I do think the financial institutions have a great opportunity given the position of how trusted they are with customer data. And, and that's a point I want to pick up with you in a moment as well, Elizabeth. Also, the fact that they already have to do the, the AML and KYC work so extensively and have made those big investments. But we definitely don't want something that is a closed shop that's legislated in some way that only some firms can participate in. You know, telcos and energy retailers are, are two such categories that have probably had to, uh, to accumulate a lot of that same identity data and, and maybe well-placed. Talking about other parties, um, Gail, I wanted to, to perhaps just pick up some of the other parties that have been involved in the, the exercise of, of producing game. And obviously, you at the Open ID Foundation and we at the IF have been part of that. But there's been quite a number of others. And I was wondering if you could tell us briefly about many other parties that are involved in this initiative and perhaps the, the commonalities of interest that have helped bring those together. Absolutely. So obviously, the IIF and the Open ID Foundation you know, partnered together through the Digital Trust Initiative. But it, it has grown you know, beyond that to now five nonprofit entities that are collaborating together and kind of voice their support for the game white paper. The third, fourth, and fifth are the Open Identity Exchange uh, that specializes in trust framework development uh, for domestic markets. They work very closely with the UK government in providing input into the trust framework that they are, are working through. And similarly, you know, have a, a natural role to help support other you know, governments to develop such trust frameworks in the game context. Um, to look at how can the interoperability between different markets, how can that, you know, happen in effect? What, how will that really work in practice? So delighted to have their their thought leadership um, on the rules, if you will, of, of how uh, all these different players can work constructively together and interoperate. There's also GLIFE, uh, which is the Global Legal Entity Identifier Foundation. And so they are representing entities who want to be able to assert entity identity and they specialize in, in that trade and have worked very closely uh, with financial institutions for a long time to enable financial service transactions and similarly can lean in and provide standards for entity entities that would like to interoperate. And that's exciting when you bring together not just the users, like where the OpenID Foundation has specialized, but to extend that to an entity identification. And the, uh, the fifth entity is the Cloud Signature Consortium, which specializes in um, digital signatures for uh, digital transactions. 
and they have a newer organization which has been inspired by EIDAS regulation in, in the UK and how you can develop um, and comply with e-signature requirements, um, again, for that European context, but again, more extensible here when looking at the exchange of identity information and not necessarily uh, regional, strictly regional compliance to regional regulation. So excited to have them part of the community as well. We warmly welcome other nonprofit entities who specialize in this space to either work on the standards development relevant to their domain or to help amplify the message and the opportunity to a wider audience. So we expect that what is now the five entities uh, will expand to others who share the mission. Yeah, and I think that sort of fits with the breadth of, of interest that have seen the opportunity and what we can, can hopefully rally others together and, and build further on that. So, so let's delve a little bit into some of the substance of the, the game paper itself. And you know, the paper is, I think, really in, in a couple of significant parts. Firstly, looking at some of the, the state of play, the problem statements, before then moving into uh, some of the opportunities uh, and how we can address that. So if we start with some of the, the challenges, the problem statements, the issues that we're trying to remedy. Elizabeth, you, you mentioned earlier a, a bit about uh, the financial inclusion agenda and, and how that's such a, a key priority amongst people like Anna Botin, who's, who's one on our board of directors at the IF as well. I was wondering if, if you can perhaps uh, look at things like that as well as some of the other known problems around financial crime and how we combat money laundering. Perhaps if you can give us a snapshot of, of these sort of issues societally today and, and why these have been so challenging for us to address. Sure. I'll try and cover the topics of financial crime and inclusion. <laughs> They're very big topics, but I'll try and give you a snapshot. And I would also point your listeners to the work that your team has done. Um, you've you've written papers on both of these subjects, I think, and they were really very helpful to me when I was learning the area. But really, let's start with let's start with financial crime. Financial services spent, I think the I think it's a refinitive study. Um, I might need to look that up for your show notes uh, if you do them. Um, but I think it's a refinitive study that uh, that shows that financial service firms spent about two hundred and thirteen billion on financial crime compliance in twenty twenty one. Um, losses still account for over a trillion dollars, though. Some estimates out of the UN and the European Union say that financial crime accounts for as much as 2 to 5% of GDP. This is trillions of dollars. And let's remember what these markets actually are. Um, sometimes when I talk about financial crime, it's easy to sort of switch off and disconnect ourselves from what these markets are actually all about. But there is untold human damage here. We're talking about the drugs trade, the narcotics trade, arms trades, human trafficking. So anything that we can do to improve how we identify and hold people accountable on the internet to reduce these problems is going to create tremendous amounts of social good. In terms of other harm, um, which I think it's important to note as well, our lack of robust identity verification creates other problems like the spread of misinformation, the harm that's caused by anonymous trolls and bullies on the internet. This kind of solution helps us to elevate that conversation. Yes, it's really important to preserve anonymity in some spaces online. It's important for us to be able to use pseudonyms in other spaces, but how can we ensure that we have an accountability layer online that begins to solve some of these challenges and stem the spread of misinformation, division, intolerance, et cetera. And then you've also rightly pointed out the opportunity to promote financial inclusion. I, this is an area of extreme interest for me, um, and I think many of the people involved in the paper. McKinsey Global Institute found that there is a huge global growth opportunity from solving the problem of digital identity. In addition to the 3 billion people who have an ID and who engage in the digital economy, for whom we can obviously provide improved services, there are also 3.4 billion people on the planet that have a form of ID but don't have the access to the digital economy. And there are also a billion people who lack any form of ID. We can help. There are opportunities to help with both of these problems. We can provide an on-ramp and an incentive to be part of the formal financial system. We can establish an identity with like a mobile operator in one place or a bank, and then leverage this relationship to move someone into the financial services world that we can open an, a bank account after the identity solution is offered. By separating these ideas of opening an account, with, we can onboard clients who don't have enough credentials to open an account today, but for whom we can provide basic services like, like payment services and remittances. And then we can also enable merchants to compete and participate in global markets. 
with a good identity system, people might be able to better participate in the gig economy, for example, or distribute products globally without having to I don't know, surrender large parts of their profit margins to globally known retailers, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the trends we've seen with uh, with the pandemic and the the shift towards a greater use of, of online commerce, you know, for instance, where you know, the St. Louis Fed's uh, Fred database showed that after just sort of gently creeping up for 20 years, the level of online uh, commerce sales suddenly increased by about 60% in the second quarter of 2020 uh, and has sustained at, at that new level. It does make it difficult for some of the small operators that are trying to compete with the big box retailers or the the e-commerce giants. And identity, I think, is a really important tool for them in terms of being able to reinvent themselves as as e-commerce businesses. But I also wanted to pick up there, Elizabeth, you you mentioned some some pretty significant numbers in terms of the spend on financial crime and the the losses. Uh, I recall Hugh Van Steenis three years ago standing on stage at the IAF annual membership meeting and saying that the, I think his example was that the top five banks in the UK spend more on anti-money laundering than the UK government spends on prisons. And I heard another stat at about the same time that the top 10 US banks spend more on anti-money laundering than the FBI's total operating budget. So we are spending enormous amounts of money. And by most of the reports from Interpol and, and Europol, we're successfully interdicting about 1% to 2% of the illicit flows. So it's a pretty terrible return on investment that we're getting for those enormous efforts today and the level of losses and the level of, of human misery um, that's facilitated from it attest to it. So it is one that we need to, to keep getting better and keep getting smarter at. And I, I do, uh, Gail, I want to go to the, the fragment, fragmentations in the ID market with you in, in a second, but perhaps to make a segue to that. There needs to be many solutions to the financial crime problem, and identity is part of it, but also we see greater opportunities for using artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies in trying to detect some of these illicit flows. On episode 101 of FRT, we had Scotiabank's Chief Risk Officer Daniel Moore talk about how they'd managed to break up, I think it was 27 human trafficking rings from Scotiabank's use of of artificial intelligence. And so we, we need to be doing all of these things. But we also run into this fragmentation problem. And a big part of the, the situation, and, uh, and I know Jay Collins at Citibank has talked a lot about this also, is we have problems sharing information across borders, even within a bank, even within a firm, that would help us to, to combat a financial crime. So I'm going to use that as my segue, Gail, to, to talk about fragmentations in the ID markets, because that's another one of the, the issues and the, the challenges that we called out in the game paper. And I was wondering if I could get you to perhaps you know, explain how some of these fragmentations also contribute to some of the, the societal problems that Elizabeth's been describing. It's such a such a broad challenge around fragmentation, Brad. I think it may be helpful to look at the history of the internet very briefly um, to see it kind of describe how we got here <laughs> and then therefore how we can solve it. So when one looks back you know, at the very beginning of the internet as, as Matt Sekimura, the chairman of the Open ID Foundation, person who introduced the white paper at the European Identity Conference, he described the beginning of the internet as being, of course, educational entities, uh, military and defense entities, where in order to get onto the internet, you had to know who they were, right? And then, of course, in our generation, the internet was, was for, for many of us now, <laughs> perhaps some young generation folks are on the call too, uh, but for, for the beginning of our careers, you know, the internet was a closed environment. And then in the 90s, it was opened up and anyone could join, but that also then created the opportunity for people to misrepresent themselves and to, you know, to steal information of others and then pretend they're someone else and, and so forth. Uh, so in that environment, we have for decades now kind of taken a, a bit as a given that you know, if you want to conduct business or perform transactions online, then any information that you exchange can be at risk. Any information that a business might exchange about you to someone else through the internet could be at risk. Um, and even if you don't participate on the internet, <laughs> if anyone has information about you and they share it on your behalf, then again, your information can be at risk, right? As, as simple as someone taking a picture of you and then posting it online, you then lose control of, of that information very, very swiftly. And so that has spun out into not only the scale of problems that Elizabeth is beautifully articulating around the financial services sector and what's happening with fake news. And, you know, uh, she didn't have a chance to touch on health, but of course, the, the current health crises that we're facing, you know, is also linked to the difficulty of identifying people and and trying to serve people effectively in in the COVID crisis. There's so many challenges that ultimately kind of distill down back to their core as being a difficulty in identifying and having identity assurance and being able as a user to assert your identity or as an enterprise to be able to assert your identity safely. 
So when we look at the kind of fragmentation, the fragmentation has been built up off of a kind of general sense of we should let the internet and, and businesses and private sector take advantage of this new technology and have at it, you know, go, go and create great businesses and services. And we've seen tremendous you know, GDP growth and wonderful user experiences from being able to have all these wonderful technologies linked to the internet and, and sharing data across parties. But uh, there have also been problems. So a whole bunch of different entrepreneurs and so forth have spun up businesses that are now very mature, multi-billion dollar uh, sectors around correctly identifying inter individuals or trying to offer those services um, to financial entities and beyond. So you have a very robust you know, sector of entities looking to help uh, identify users in this, in this environment. And different levels of regulations and progressive levels of regulation of the internet in order to mitigate the problems, again, ranging from financial crime to misrepresentation and theft of identities. So in that kind of fragmented context, uh, where you have a whole bunch of different service providers, if you are a given relying party, so let's say you are an Uber trying to identify drivers and make sure that they have, you know, an appropriate driving history, you know, and that they also are really who they say they are. Uh, if you're trying to go through that process, there may be regulation that they have to follow depending on the country that they're in, but usually they have a very complex waterfall process to correctly try and identify people. So they're going to, you know, I can easily identify this person because I have really good data on them that I can buy from different third parties, or they have been with me for a long time and then I have to establish who they are when they come back to me. But a very, you know, they might be lining up 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 different services in order to be able to identify the millions of people that drive for them around the world. And not only when they first onboard those individuals, but that to make sure when they come back again and again, it's still the same person, you know, going into the car and turning on their application and, and going off for a drive. And that's just one company, right? <laughs> so you multiply that across every different kind of entity that needs to identify individuals. It's, it's a wide range of services and, and very challenging problem for, for them to, to solve. And at this point, you know, Elizabeth and I were saying offline that there really isn't such a thing as like some, some market. You know, you, if you're in charge of identity or security for your company, you don't just walk into some public square and you can easily see 30 different services or 5,000 different services and, you know, you can consume them and they would be interoperable with each other. There is not really a marketplace, you know, for those services per se. There may be aggregators who combine services that come from different players, but there's not really just one kind of public training space. So one way that I've described like the game paper and how you can kind of address that fragmentation is by having a common standard. It would allow for blind parties to knit together the different services they want to consume using a common, common language, right? And instead of having bespoke SDKs, you know, bespoke services that you have to incorporate and figure out how to consume, you'd have a common language for at least, you know, a segment of the information you're looking for and some of the most important information you're looking for in order to accurately be able to assess um, and have assurance about that individual's identity. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And it's one that I think resonates with what we see across a lot of other areas of, of digital finance innovation as well. This emphasis on standards that is the basis to, to bring things together. And, and it comes up uh, at times in, in policy debates where the absence of a standard has caused some, some of the, the types of fragmentation that you describe. Some want to see a policy response. And of course, governments will generally, quite rightly, I think, say, we don't want to be mandating a technology. We'd rather be technology neutral, technology agnostic, which then makes it really critical that we in the industry can come together and convalesce around a standard. And it's great that the technical standards that you described earlier, that the OpenID Foundation has already developed, but the, the coming together of minds and of all these different entities. Can we touch for a moment on why this is important for the financial sector? I think commercially, as well as what you've described in terms of the, a lot of the good that we can do through society. And I mentioned earlier that I think there's, this is one of those instances where there's a great alignment of, of those uh, objectives. But I think from a commercial or a strategic point of view, you know, we see the trend of platformization, that consumer finance is increasingly being done on platforms and that creates challenges for banks and insurers in finding their space in that environment uh, and how they, they, how they can maintain a, a central role in, in customer relationships. But also we see a lot of preferences being articulated by customers in how their data is protected. And we saw the Bank of England Future of Finance report two years ago where 84% of people said they most trust their bank with protecting their data. And we saw the BIS study this year uh, where American consumers had overwhelmingly said they trust their bank more than they trust the government and they trust the government more than they trust tech firms with their data. 
So I see some some opportunities perhaps with that in mind, and, and I wanted to, to get your view specifically from a, a financial sector perspective, you know, where you see this as being in banks' interests to step up and, and help to catalyse the change and the benefits that, that they can bring across society in playing that leadership role. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about why, in my opinion, Santander has you know, shown leadership in this area. And I do believe it's broadly in banks' interests to lead on solutions that promote economic empowerment, financial inclusion, and combat financial crime. I do believe, as our chairwoman, I'll quote her again, I, I, I do believe what I've heard her say in an interview with, um, with Dan Schulman last year, that it's, it's good for the business to do good. But there are, like you say, some real financial benefits, strategic benefits to banks as well. So uh, let's drill down on those in, in some more detail first. Beginning with efficiency, there are a whole host of processes that become easier from document signing to customer service to processing credit applications. You know, in, in Norway, I think they actually had to build some more friction into that process because it was happening too quickly. We'll reduce fraud too. Um, and again, I'll, I'll use Norway as the example. I think the publicly quoted figure is fraud is 0.00042% of transactions. That's very, very low. Um, and we should just make sure that's publicly quoted. I think it is. So then there's revenue, of course. Um, it's the easiest one out of all of the benefits to explain. As happens today, identity verification services do have a, a price attached to them. So users will have a choice as to who their trusted identity information provider is. Um, and a lot of users are multi-banked, so they'll have a choice of which banks to choose from. And indeed, they, it may not be a bank that, in this ecosystem. But each time they verify a small amount of money is going to flow into this ecosystem, and a percentage of that money is going to go to the identity information provider. So that will deliver, if they choose a bank, and if they choose your bank, they, that will deliver a return on that bank's investment in Know Your Customer in authentication and security, it turns a huge cost center into a profit center. But just like in the case of a physical or a virtual wallet, you want to be the top card. You want to be that top provider. It's in the bank's best interest to be the preferred provider. So that, that means that we have to get into the ecosystem pretty early. Um, as we say in the paper, the time is now. Then really that brings us to the biggest benefits, which are strategic. As I talked about before, I think there is strong competition to provide high trust identity assurance. And if others out there come up with a solution before financial services find a way to collaborate to achieve the kind of global reach that is required by relying parties, then they risk another provider coming between them and their customers or competing with them to provide access to capital markets. Um, you rightly brought up platformization. So banks like Santander that seek competitive advantage from digital transformation and want to win in this global digital economy, an economy that's increasingly characterized by different manifestations of open banking, cannot afford to sit on the sidelines of digital identity. In my view, building trust between parties is an essential step in really any transaction that's conducted online, whether you're changing your address with a provider or buying a quilt on Etsy, as I have done. Or, um, you know, wiring a down payment on a house, as I've also done. You need to know that the other party is who they claim that they are. So there's a, there's a really, there's a competitive battleground here. And whomever develops the ability to provide highly trustworthy identity assurance in digital transactions can provide access to other things, payment services, capital markets. Um, and that's why I believe banks really need to be at this table and they need to be here now. But also, I think they need to be at the table as a group. And I think to, to a point that uh, we were talking about with Gail a moment ago in terms of having the industry convalesce around the standards, if you want to be able to offer something as a service here that the person operating their small business via Etsy or the person that's remitting transaction for, for the deposit on a house or the small brewery that's trying to establish that the people buying from them are over 21, they can't do this in isolation with one bank because one bank might represent or be able to reach and validate 10% of the population it needs the, the industry as a whole to come together and convalesce around that standard because it's only uh, as a group, as a collective industry, that you can achieve the sort of reach that those people are going to need to, have, to be able to rely on. Absolutely. Yeah, Brad, I'd agree. I don't think there's any one bank, you know, or any one digital platform or any one identity service provider, you know, who's able to cover the whole spectrum. 
Um, so there is inherently, I think, a need for, for everyone to lean in together, not least the banks. I have the benefit of having spent five years leading digital payments and, and products at HSBC from a global perspective. And so I have some sense you know, that banks tend to be risk-averse organizations, but this is kind of as risk-averse as you can get, right? So if a bank at its core trades in trust, right, that individuals can trust them to leave their money with them, uh, enterprises can trust them to perform services for them. If they were to lose that trust and the trust that's linked to identity, then it becomes quite existential, you know, for not just one bank, but all banks, if that were to, to move elsewhere and banks weren't, weren't party to the, to the journey. So I think it's intrinsically logical and, as Elizabeth said, quite strategic um, to lean in and not just wait and see, but in this case, to be a first mover and to, to view it as something that's an imperative, not just a, an optional activity. Absolutely. So to conclude, I, I do want to step through a couple of further things before we, we wrap up. And, and part of that is about the gain vision uh, articulated in the paper and also a bit of, of what comes next with proof of concept activity. Gail, perhaps looking beyond financial institutions, and we did talk a little earlier about some of the other firms, but I was wondering if you could, you could briefly describe for us some of the other roles that need to be played in this ecosystem and who might some of those other firms or agencies or entities you see that, that might want to come forth and, and play a prominent function? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we described a little bit how banks can play a natural role as a potential identity service provider. Of course, banks can also be uh, relying parties. Right? They can be beneficiaries you know, in this ecosystem. Some of the other regulated sectors like telcos and utilities, they also you know, go through EKYC. They also tend to know their users. There may be variation you know, depending on the market in their, their role, as Elizabeth had said, but they also could be great contributors to provide identity services and also to be relying parties. We would also see a wide range of identity service providers already in this domain, facilitating identity services who can lean in and would probably quite easily adopt these standards. In fact, most of them already use the standards that are proposed. And so identity service providers, I think, uh, who specialize in identity capabilities would, would lean in. Um, and there could be some others as well, like that might not immediately come to mind. So for example, um, many governments are looking at issuing mobile driving licenses, mobile national IDs, mobile passports. Those can be essentially identity functions, right? They're government-issued identity services, but digital identity credentials could play a role like an identity service provider, as well as general government services like the Social Security Administration, you know, opens up Social Security verification uh, in, in the U.S. There could be government-enabled services that, that have some role to play, and there could be verifiable credentials, there could be digital platforms, the big digital majors, you know, quite a few different entities could be in that IDP side. And then we've talked about many verticals on the relying party side of the equation, both banks and mobile networks and um, digital platforms could be on the relying party side too, right? Because nobody has a, the full picture. Um, so they could be on relying parties as well as uh, any online entity that needs to, to verify information about a, a user, uh, which can be, again, very, very broad from health to age verification to, to many beyond that. We also mentioned nonprofits, of course, as potential enablers and the rules and the standards and the capabilities. Um, clearly, there could be many of those who weigh in as well. And uh, what you can kind of forget, you know, the privacy advocates and the um, legislators and the governments who, you know, are keen to kind of see development here. Um, at this point, this is not, it's kind of adjacent to, to regulation. I think what we're talking about, it's a, can it help enable compliance to existing regulation. Uh, this is not an exercise where we're seeing government's mandate that the community set up this functionality. Who knows what would happen in the fullness of time, you know, what the expectations would be of, of legislators. But we definitely see existing uh, legislation and progressive amounts of it, which a service like this and true interoperability can, can seek to address, you know, for the benefit of all. Absolutely. Elizabeth, we've, we've talked a bit about the role financial institutions can play in providing identity services, in part because they've had to make such massive investments, the sort of uh, really eye-popping dollar values or equivalencies that we were talking about earlier in the KYC and AML space. But a lot of, of course, what we do in the financial sector is, is underpinned by verifying and validating government-issued IDs as uh, a really uh, integral part of the, the source information with all of that. And I was wondering if you can explain a bit about how all of this interacts and how it can interact going forward, that we continue to use government IDs as a, a very, very much a vital source, 
but where it is that the, the banks or, or insurers perhaps or others uh, are able to provide the service into the ecosystem off that basis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the paper does run through the reasons why financial institutions are well-placed to act as a catalyst and build this network. And you've really hit the nail on the head in your reference to government-issued ID. In this paradigm that we're proposing, governments continue to issue IDs. In fact, you'll notice that the GAIN paper uses the term identity information provider instead of what might be a more common language of ID provider or IDP in, in some circles. Um, we did that very much on purpose because we want to draw a distinction that that banks are not currently in the business of issuing identities, and, and we're not arguing that banks should enter that business. Instead, what we're asking is that banks provide an identity information service on behalf of those relying parties that we've been talking about, those who need to consume the information. Um, that service crucially links end users uh, like you or me um, to information about our government-issued identities. Um, maybe it's your name, maybe it's your age. Either way, it comes from a source that has validated that information. And that brings us to why banks are positioned to offer the service. I will make two points here. Uh, number one, as you called out in the question, banks invest in making sure that they know their customers. We call this KYC, know your customer. Um, they do this to prevent financial crime um, and because there are regulatory frameworks in place that, that mandate it. As part of this process, a bank will take a number of steps to validate that you are who you claim to be and confirm the validity of that government-issued identification that you, that you proffer. Um, and not only that, but they build the technological infrastructure to confirm that it is really you when someone tries to transact on your account, whether it's to change your address or send a payment. Um, they have layer upon layer of tools to authenticate you and keep your account secure and your information private. And the second point I'll make is that regulation itself. It's, it's a build off that first one. Financial services is a highly regulated ecosystem, and rightly so. Um, it provides sufficient scaffolding around which the rules of the game here can be created. So as a citizen, I want to know that my trusted identity information provider is going to act ethically and responsibly with my information, not sell my data or use it in inappropriate ways. So there are opportunities to leverage our existing regulatory frameworks to build a solid foundation of rules for this network. Um, those two points, uh, the investment in KYC and authentication and the existing regulatory structures, they assure what Gail was referring to earlier. They, were, they assure what is our core offer, and that's trust. While others might monetize your data, a bank is in the business of trust. They're monetizing your security. Um, and the trust and the security that banks have offered throughout their history have catalyzed a lot of big changes in our economy, right? They've built the rails for early trade. Um, they've built debit and credit card systems, global payments, um, and securities. So as we move into this next phase for our economy, when we're transacting more and more online, identity is the next frontier for banks. And they are uniquely positioned to offer the infrastructure that helps us get there. And Elizabeth, if I can follow up on that briefly, just by, by touching on the examples that are actually up and running. Because I think a lot of what you've described is, is similar to what's already in place in the Nordic countries with the, the bank ID solution. We also mentioned uh, a secure key earlier in the, the conversation and the verified me solution in Canada increasingly, I, I think, is, is following that same model. And just interested in your thoughts as to, to how transferable these, these very successful real use cases that are already happening in the Nordics and in Canada, you know, how transferable do you think that approach is to other markets? Yeah, well, okay, so I think that there is a lot that is transferable here. And I think that the core tr concept is transferable everywhere, uh, fundamentally. Um, they've built a fantastic user experience as well, and we should try and emulate their, their focus on that. But even as there are a lot of things about their model that are transferable to other markets, uh, I think there are differences as well. Bank ID Sweden and Bank ID Norway, these were joint efforts between the banks and national governments within the borders of a single country. This is wonderful. It worked there and it, it may work in, in some other places. And it's also a pretty quick way to get things done in, in the borders of that single country. However, um, it's not global. And there are other countries where maybe the politics prevent that exact model being used. There's a less centralized model now, I think, being pursued in the UK. In the US, I think that there are maybe, let's say, local norms that might preclude 
a single identity solution being led in partnership with the U.S. government. And it, you know, I could see that it would be very difficult to get all the governments on one page about a single standard, standardized system, right? So when we're considering a global model, we should really probably be thinking, I mean, uh, Gail, you referred to the history of the internet earlier. We should be thinking about the way that the internet was created. We have a consistent top-level technology standard administered by ICANN, which is a nonprofit group. And if we can create something similar that allows for differences across jurisdictions, different backbones, so Norway and Sweden can have their respective versions of, of bank ID, and this will be interoperable with those of other jurisdictions, including the one that you mentioned earlier in Canada, Brad. Um, I think this is, this is what we need to be thinking about, a really flexible, interoperable global approach. Yeah, I think it ties back to some of what, what Gail talked about earlier with that emphasis on interoperability and also on the notion of having common standards, giving the ability for all to kind of plug in and play with that. So, so Gail, I wanted to, to conclude by talking a bit about next steps and in particular, some of the, the proof of concept activity. And the Open ID Foundation is coordinating the launch of a, of a first proof of concept uh, initiative, um, which I think is fantastic. And I think is going to be a really important part of demonstrating some of the, the technical capabilities. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and, and perhaps uh, how firms or other interested parties can reach out and get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can imagine some of uh, your listeners may be thinking that this is all a bit of a dream and that it sounds really great, but how on earth is that actually going to happen or happen within my, my lifetime, right? Because what we're really talking about is a, you know, a new layer to the internet, an assured identity layer to the internet where everyone's playing nice together and just as easy as you can access the internet today, right? You're able to assert your identity and different parties can consume it. I mean, that sounds dreamy. And we believe, you know, together with yourselves, that this actually is something we can prove out right now with the existing technology and standards. So the OpenID Foundation is in the midst of a listening tour um, after having published the paper, where we're looking forward to listening to the community on how we can effectively set up a proof of concept and uh, initiate and kick off that proof of concept in December. So the listening tour will have uh, at least two ports of call, but others uh, included. And then come December, the intention is to actually, you know, initiate those discussions, create sensible milestones that everybody, everyone buys into. But the current hypothesis is that we can take some of those solutions you were talking about. There's Secure Key in Canada, uh, the Bank ID solution in the Nordics. Uh, there are a couple of others in, in Europe and, and some that are you know, being conceived in, in the U.S. and essentially kind of knit them together, right? So they would take their services and they would create outputs that would use the EKYC and IDA standard. So they create an output that says, oh, I, I know who this individual is. I'm going to output that to the EKYC and IDA standard. And depending on the country that a generic transaction is happening in, what is the trust framework that one would need to follow, right? If it's in the UK, following the UK trust framework model. If it were in Canada, following the Canadian trust framework model, et cetera. And that would all be part of the transaction. So then the relying party, right? Any relying parties that participate and, you know, Disney and uh, Adobe, a few others have put up their hands, you know, as interested entities to be relying parties, they can put up their hands, they can receive that information and see, how can I consume this, right? Am I getting what I expect? So this is not new technology. This is just a forum as a proof of concept for interested entities to come together and prove out the technology. We are calling it from the OpenID Foundation, a community group. This is a community of interested entities who take the same well-published open standard and just execute it and see what happens <laughs> to prove out technically that it works, right? The way that we all know that it will because it's already been implemented in some places. One uh, OpenID Foundation member, yes.com in Germany has already implemented EKYC and IDA standards. So it's live and working you know, across uh, banks within their community and in Germany. So we have, uh, we have great expectations that we're going to draw in a bunch of interested folks. This podcast is a great way to reach a, a bunch of new members and to encourage them to actively engage. And you don't have to, there's no um, fees to participate, right? We're trying to create the lowest barriers uh, one could possibly have to listen in. And for those that are ready to start testing their own technology and prove it out. And then other conversations like um, at the, the Open Identity Exchange, they will be working on the rules, that interoperability of different trust frameworks and how this can happen in practice. So we're looking to push forward on multiple different fronts simultaneously in order to make the white paper a reality. It's a, it's a great vision and, and a great journey of, of how this brings it to life. And I think it'll do a lot to really uh, assert the credibility of the vision uh, and that this is actually something achievable and that more of the parties can get, get on board with. 
Elizabeth, I want to give you a final word, and, and Gail alluded there a bit to, to some of the potential reliant parties, you know, some of the firms like Disney and Adobe, she mentioned, uh, as, as just some of those that we've been talking with through the course of the Open Digital Trust Initiative. And with that in mind, I'm really interested in, in any final word you have on some of the particular opportunities that perhaps you're most excited about seeing uh, as we, we take this thinking and, and see it increasingly mature into actual activity via the proof of concept. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited about a whole range of things, Brad. Um, I'm going to start on a personal note. I'm, I'm very excited as, as the world opens up after COVID-19 to meet some of the 150 co-authors of the game paper and the many, many collaborators on all of this stuff. So I'm really looking forward to, to that happening. Um, I've met one person in person so far, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. More uh, medium term, I'm really looking forward to continuing the work with the Open Digital Trust Initiative, You know, the publication of the draft principles later this year, and continued conversations about how all of this might work from a financial institution perspective and the relying parties that we've brought to the table. And then, you know, longer term, as these proofs of concept come together, as we develop the regulatory frameworks, the trust frameworks, et cetera, I, I'm looking forward to the benefits, to seeing the, the benefits th that we're creating here. We're going to be in a world that is more inclusive um, with reduced misinformation um, where we're able to better deal with some of the crises, similar to what we've seen. Um, we're going to have a higher level of trust and civility online and, you know, a, a, a more inclusive, less harmful world. Uh, so I'm really excited to continue pursuing all of those aims with you, both of you. Well, it's, it's a lot to be excited about. And I think it's a, a really important part of, of how not only our firms uh, across the financial sector find their way in this new digital economy, but as you say, how we make it safer, uh, how we make it more accessible for the small businesses that are trying to sell and find their way in an e-commerce economy, for the people that are wanting to be able to safely transact without being as exposed to fraud and, and how do we combat some of those issues around financial crime. There's a, a lot to be excited about. So, so thank you, Gail. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm going to attempt to summarise and recap on, on some of the key themes, although we've covered a lot of ground through this discussion. It was a significant Nanobotin's goal of including and empowering 10 million people, which is a fantastic objective to have, but also one that, that you know I think is actually realistic and achievable, particularly with some of the initiatives that we've talked about. Gail emphasised the point that interoperability is very much the key word. And, uh, and anyone that's been involved in this project over the last 12, 18, 24 months with us has probably heard me use that word way too much, but it is, I agree, the key word, and, and it's applicable on, on multiple levels. And it also includes that issue of connectivity in an international uh, arena. I think aligned with that, uh, Gail also made the point that, that GAIN is not a single firm, it's not a single payment platform, and also that in terms of being a, a standard in which anyone can play, emphasising that a lot of those standards are actually already in place with some of the work that's been done, like OpenID Connect and the OpenID track record of, of building interoperable standards. Uh, we, we talked about the, the development of the game paper and the willingness of, of authors to focus on the benefits for the individual, for the end user, uh, for the consumer, and that any solution needs to be one that protects the user's data, but also that it's seamless and, and simple to use, which again emphasises that point about interoperability again, but reflects that we're very much recognising we need to get into the, the end user's shoes and look at what's convenient for them, which includes the, the need to have global reach. Uh, it's great to, to see how, how so much of the industry has come together in this initiative. Uh, and Gail talked us through, you know, people like Nick Mothershaw we've dealt a lot with at, at, uh, at OIX, but also the Global LEI Foundation, the Cloud Signature Consortium. And Gail's made very much the call to action there for anybody else that would like to get involved and, and join this uh, and build on this together further. Uh, we talked about the enormous challenges associated with financial crime and anti-money laundering, the eye-popping numbers that, that uh, Elizabeth mentioned, both in expenditure and in losses, but also other societal problems alongside that and where we see the spread of misinformation online, which uh, is, is one that I think is, is the root of a, a number of other issues that we see through society and through the populace today. And, and I think Gail made the point that the banks provide trust, that it is fundamentally what they do, both with people's money, with their data, and that uh, in terms of the, the call to action on banks and insurers to step up and, uh, and take the lead uh, and the leadership role and the opportunity that's there, if they don't do that, then somebody else will. And lastly, to, to recap on the, the proof of concept, Gail, I think, gave us a great call to action there and a call for anybody to get in touch via the current OpenID Foundation's listening tour. 
stressing that it is very much a community of interest group and also a, a way forward which we'll be building on some of the examples that secure key in Canada, that bank ID in the Nordics, which uh, hopefully a number of participants are already familiar with and where there is already something of a track record. I think this proof of concept is going to do a, a great, great piece of work in building further on that, on building on that credibility and helping to show us the way forward. So, well, that was quite a lot. I hope I've managed to do justice to capturing just some of the, the themes that, that Gail and Elizabeth have shared with us. Thank you both for joining us on FRT. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. And just quickly ahead on FRT, a few other things we'll, I just want to highlight from some of our upcoming episodes. We're going to be picking up a great book from Bill Cohen, the former Secretary General of the Bail Committee, RegTech, Subtech and Beyond, Innovation in Financial Services. We're going to talk about that with Bill and also with my colleague Natalia Bailey, who actually authored one of the chapters in that book, uh, focusing on artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm also going to catch up with Steve Suarez. Uh, Steve was recently promoted at HSBC to their Global Head of Innovation for Global Functions. He ran a fascinating transformation program that had its own challenges right at the uh, the onset of the, the COVID pandemic. Steve's going to talk about that and I think it's a, a really fascinating journey uh, and use case that, that he'll share. And we're going to look at cloud. Fascinating report recently by Google Cloud on adoption across the industry. And I'm looking forward to hearing from Chester Chua, who's going to talk about that one with my colleague, Dennis Ferenzi. So please join us for those discussions and much more on FRT. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening. <laughs>